Hi, welcome to a new episode of Pasha. My name is Inas Kosana. Thanks for joining us. In today's episode, we talk about inequality and water. Cape Town almost experienced day zero, a day where the taps ran dry. We are now entering a phase where we start anticipating the very real possibility of a day zero scenario. A documentary tells the story of how community activists and researchers came together to address water problems in a city struck by severe drought. It's called the Sense Makers Project and will be featured throughout this episode. As Basi says, water is life. Without water, I can't do no answer. Our guests are Gina Zierfogel, Associate Professor in the Department of Environmental and Geographical Science at the University of Cape Town in South Africa. We have to accept that the climate is changing and therefore we need to adapt to those changes. So we talk about adapting to climate change as reducing the impacts of climate change. And Johan Engsvist, a postdoctoral researcher affiliated with the Africa Climate and Development Initiative at the University of Cape Town and Stockholm University in Sweden. I got involved in this project because I was interested in the water crisis in Cape Town. Um, it was a very unique situation in the level of attention that it got. I started by asking them to take us through Cape Town's severe drought. Thanks. I think what's interesting is the drought actually sort of was starting in sort of 2015, 2016, but it was only in 2017 that it became a bigger thing on the radar. But the dam levels were sort of at 47%, below 50% in 2016 and 2017. But by um, January 2018, they were down to 31%. So there was a big concern, would we be able to uh, get through the summer months with low levels of water? And they really, um, the drought really affected everyone in Cape Town. It was something that was all pervasive. Um, Households were having to make cuts. There were restrictions. There were increases in water tariffs. Uh, Lots of businesses were having to rethink how they used water because the prices were so high. It had health impacts because um, there were concerns about various health-related things that might happen with low amounts of water and um, using recycled water was becoming more common and there are a lot of uh, precautions that need to be taken when using recycled water because you have to have the quality of water needs to be good for people not to get sick. But what's important is that different households experienced it differently because if you had a household of four and you were able to um, reduce your daily water use and had a garden and stopped watering it, you could manage, if you tried really hard, to stick within the 50 litre per person per day limit that was imposed during the height of the drought. However, if you had a household of eight or 10 people, there was a monthly uh, cap. And then it was very hard to stay within that because even if those individuals cut down to 50 litres per person a day, your total amount was over the limit that the city was imposing. And so those people then often had to pay high amounts of money for the water that they were using. And often those were poorer households who had large numbers living on one property, sometimes in backyard uh, shacks, etc. So different people experienced it differently. Also, some people needed water for their livelihoods, whether it was a car wash business or growing flowers, etc. And then if you had to cut down water use, it directly impacted. Johan, would you like to add to that? Yeah, no, I think you, you've uh, captured most of it quite well. I think one thing to add is just that 
in, in terms of impact, the impact that a, that a crisis like this has also depends a lot on what resources and what capacity do you have to adapt and to change the way you live your life. So, for example, if you are a more affluent household, you're more likely to be able to afford a Jojo tank, for example, to capture rainwater and store that or, or to install a borehole or simply to buy water from other sources. And I think that's um, obviously not something that you can do if you're living in a poorer household that is already struggling to kind of meet, make ends meet. So adapting to these types of changes is a lot harder in those situations as well. So Gina, do you think that we'll see climate change cause more situations like this? Unfortunately, the answer is yes. We know that the climate is changing and we can expect more extreme events and there are going to be more droughts. That is a reality of the future. So how extreme these droughts will be, how often they'll be, isn't exactly clear, but we know that there are going to be more of them. And that also needs to be overlaid with the fact that there are more people moving to cities, people want to use more water, as people want to sort of establish themselves in the cities, whether it's life through their kind of economic livelihoods or their daily lives. And so we are going to be under pressure when it comes to water security in cities. So we really need to think carefully of how we adapt to this, um, both at the individual level and at the city level, because not only is rainfall patterns changing, but also there's an increase in temperature, which means higher evaporation and less water because of that as well. But Johan, even when there isn't a drought, there's still inequality when it comes to access to water. And why is this the case? Well, it's for both for uh, historical and kind of contemporary um, reasons in terms of uh, how, how the city was planned and, and the politics of, of what gets prioritized. Much of the city, and, and kind of including uh, the infrastructure of, of Cape Town, was built intentionally to be... Uh, unequal because it was built during apartheid and, and, the, and the colonial times and replacing the infrastructure uh, from those times takes many decades it, it does in any part of the world it, it's the infrastructure that you put in place is usually meant to be there for for many decades so undoing that inequality takes a lot of time and on top of that there's also a historical dimension in terms of access to services because some whole households have inherited uh, debts, so the debts in the, in the water bills that, that are difficult to repay. In some cases, those come from uh, leaks that were caused by bad pipes that were put in place in, in uh, disadvantaged areas. In other cases, it's also due to refusal to pay historically, since uh, some households uh, use that as a way of protesting against the apartheid regime. But in addition to this, there's also kind of contemporary problems. Gina mentioned the the rapid urbanization, and I think there's a mismatch there between the pace of the urban growth and how fast the city is extending its services. But that is also not just a matter of how much services you're providing to citizens, it's also a matter of how you're doing it. And I think that comes back to what Gina was mentioning before, the size of people's households and the type of dwelling that you live in. So many, many of the policies and, and also the kind of the physical infrastructure, such as the, the, the water management devices and so on, are often based on assumptions that a household shouldn't really have more than four people. So, yeah, there's a lot of kind of complicated factors that are, that are playing in here and kind of maintaining the, the inequality that we have even outside of droughts. 
But often the city data doesn't actually reflect these um, realities on the ground and the complexities that you've mentioned. They have like the number of taps that are working, but they don't actually explain how this affects people's lives. Why is it important to capture this data? Thank you. I think it's a very important question because many cities have a lot of data on what's happening, on the infrastructure, etc. But much less understanding of how people are experiencing this infrastructure, the live realities, and are things working or not. If we think of taps in an informal settlement, for example, there might be 20 taps in um, one settlement, but there might be six of those taps that are broken. Some might have been vandalized, some might have just been leaking. So those ones are out of order. We then might have another five taps that a certain group of households decide are for them only, and so others can't use those taps. And so when you look at it, there are actually only 10 taps available for a large number of people. Yet that's not captured in the data that assesses how many taps are in a certain area. And so that's just one example of where we really need to understand how things are working, why. What did people in that area try and do to fix the taps? Did they contact uh, city officials? Were they frustrated and the city officials said they couldn't help? Did the city officials send them somewhere else? What is the story of how things are being governed and problems addressed? Because it's in understanding that complexity that we can start to improve the lived experience of people in our cities. And we really need to move towards that because unfortunately, it's often the poor who do not get the attention that they deserve, yet they're living in these often very poor conditions. And so paying attention to the data um, of understanding some of those more qualitative elements is really important to try and include in city decision making. Um, you guys were part of the SenseMakers project and tried to capture this data. Can you tell us more about the project and how it worked? I'd like to start by just providing a bit of context on the broader project and then Johan can add um, on the SenseMaker project specifics. So I got awarded a grant from the AXA Research Fund to look at urban resilience in the context of climate change and water stress in Cape Town and particularly thinking about issues of inequality. And so during the droughts, we did a lot of work on understanding the governance of the drought, particularly within the city, how they were managing it, who was involved. And we felt that we really needed to complement that with understanding what was happening at the local level. And so um, myself and Johan worked closely with an NGO called EMG, the Environmental Monitoring Group, and a local social movement called the Western Cape Water Caucus. And as part of that work, we started to unpack some of the history of the organization, what they've done. They've worked for 20 years on issues of water, climate change, access, trying to improve services in the city for people in low-income areas. And there was a really um, engaged group of activists. And one of the things they really wanted to do was have material and data that captured their stories and that they could then use that data in their advocacy work. So it wasn't just their personal story, it was actually the data of their neighborhoods and other people in the neighborhood. And we were focused on water and issues around water stress. So that was where it came from. And then Johan and I worked closely with some other colleagues to work on the SenseMaker project, which was a way to start capturing data. And Johan can say more about that process. Sure, thanks, Tina. Yes, so the SenseMaker, it's actually based on, on a specific research tool that is 
Basically, it aims to help a researcher make sense of what a person's experience is. So in this case, we wanted to capture stories of people's daily water problems and how they try to deal with them. And so we worked with the Western Cape Water Caucus and developed kind of a questionnaire so that and, and trained them in, in how to collect stories. Because another important part was that the Water Caucus really wanted to build that capacity themselves to also collect data and learn how to collect stories from their neighborhoods and communities and present that in a way to, to city officials. So involving them in the process of designing the research project was a really key part here. Another reason was also because they are much more credible collectors of stories than, than us as outsiders coming, coming into communities and asking people uh, about their issues. They went and asked their neighbors and people living, uh, people that they knew that struggled uh, in their communities, which also made the, the data more robust in a sense that they, they had access to and, and could gain trust of people more uh, in a better way. So basically the product itself had two parts. First was the kind of design of the, of the process and the, the, the questions that we were going to ask and, and training, um, how do you do interviews in a, in a sort of a scientific way. And the second part was coming back with all of the stories that were collected. Um, the Water Caucus collected over 300 stories, uh, all in all, from uh, several different communities around Cape Town. And in the second part, we kind of went through this and, and with the, the SenseMaker tool, we were also able to kind of identify patterns in, this, in the data set. And with the Water Caucus, we worked to identify kind of the key messages and the key findings and support them in, in preparing presentations and, and being able to kind of share the findings back with both the communities that they had studied in and importantly, uh, officials from the city of Cape Town and as well as other NGOs that they interact with. Nuhan and Gina came and we had workshops with him. And then we started with a sense maker. They educate us around that. And we had classes at Stellenbosch University. Then we had this like data collecting. They first educated us about it, find out the root causes, where does it come from, how does the problem started in the communities and so on. Then we had to go out. And what were the findings? What did you guys find? I think that uh, the most common theme that came through in these stories was a sense of frustration. People share a lot of examples of ongoing problems that they have, but they are really struggling to, to resolve those problems. So, so I think among, to mention a few problems, uh, the, among the most common were problems with water bills that are either that they can't pay them or that there's something wrong with the bills. Also water management devices were a common problem that they were not functioning well or that they had been installed in a way that the residents didn't feel was fair. And it was also very common that people had problems with leaks that, were, that didn't get fixed. When we asked people why they weren't able to resolve their problems, it was often a combination of either not knowing who to go to or who to, who to ask for help, or when they do talk to uh, the right person, they weren't able to, to get any help at all. They either were sent away or were promised help and they, they didn't get the help. It's also important to point out another finding is that the different problems that people have are often linked. So if you have, for example, a person who has a high debt, so they have a bill that they can't pay 
and they might accept having a water management device installed to get the bill scrapped. But then when they get the, the, the water management device, it starts leaking and instead then the bill increases further. So they kind of get trapped in the situation where they lose control of, of their debt and, and still don't get the water they want. Or in other cases, people had these devices installed without getting proper information. So they didn't understand how they're supposed to work, which meant that the household then sometimes used too much water and the water got cut off and they didn't understand why. So that kind of added to the frustration in a different way. And Jenna, how have you shared these research? Thanks. So for us, it was really important to think carefully about this because it isn't just an academic project. So we did produce academic products and we've had two academic journal articles out that we've been sharing. But part of the SenseMaker process that Johan described was actually these workshops. And in the second set of workshops, we invited people to come and listen. So we had other members of the caucus who weren't involved in the research. And then we also had a day where city officials came and saw what had been done and the data that had been produced. And the city officials were very excited about this because it was different to the kind of data that they usually collect and because they have started to recognize the importance of engaging more directly with communities. So I would say that's one of the really good things that came out of the drought is that the city officials in the water department particularly could see how important it was to engage more with constituents outside of just the kind of government uh, departments where they were thinking about delivering services and actually realize that there's this two-way interaction. And what's exciting for Johan and I to observe is coming out of this process of sharing the data with the city, the NGO and the social movement has taken forward a series of dialogues with the city where they've met last year and they'll meet again this year to talk about some of these issues and how to resolve them. But we also felt that it was important to share this work in other ways. And so we've worked with a filmmaker, Burdendal Esterhazer, who's produced a wonderful 17-minute documentary about the process, where you can hear directly from the caucus members about their experience being part of this project. You can see the faces of Johan and I and the other researchers in the project and get a real sense of who was involved and why this was important to them. And then we've also worked with another group to map some of these stories because it's useful to kind of have these stories on a map and show the locations in which these stories happened and capture some of these for other people to share, as well as produce a shorter booklet that the caucus members could use and share among their networks. So we've kind of thought carefully about the dissemination of this work and it's wonderful to be in conversation with the conversation because I think you also reach a broad audience. Thank you, Gina. Um, Johan, how do you think your work with the city of Cape Town that Gina has just described, how do you think this will um, help poorer communities? So far, there's often a, a disconnect between the city and, and communities like these ones. I think the city often wants to do good, but they struggle to develop strategies that kind of match with the problems on the ground. At the same time, communities often feel unseen and unheard. And when they do get a chance to talk to the city, then often get quite confrontational because they're trying to kind of catch up with the, the, the lack of listening that they've, they've perceived from, from before. So what this work has really tried to do, I think, is to give both sides a better, a better set of tools to communicate and collaborate with each other. So when you have kind of a set of data or, or a, this set of stories that describe the problems on the ground and that both sides agree on or, or understand that they, they have some truth to them, then that becomes a really important starting point. And you can 
sit down and discuss what to do uh, to address these problems once you kind of both recognize them. So I think communities can really benefit from being able to explain their situation more clearly using not just their own personal stories, but also kind of hard data and some numbers saying like, this is a very common problem in my area. And I think the city also benefits because they can direct their efforts towards more productive um, solutions rather than implementing uh, ones that are sometimes even counterproductive. What we're seeing is that it seems like more broadly, climate change is going to hit um, poorer communities harder. So how do we deal with this? So I think one of the things that needs to start happening more is there needs to be more of these collaborative processes where both we have space to hear from those who are impacted most what they think solutions might be. And then, of course, there are city governments who need to provide certain services and need to adapt some of their services to be suited to those who are most impacted. And so we need to find these spaces of collaboration. And I think in the past, what we saw is when we thought of how do cities adapt to climate change, there was a tendency to focus on infrastructure and technical responses and whether putting air conditioning in and things like that. What we've started to see now is people are starting to think in a more holistic way. First of all, if we do something like air conditioning, that has energy costs, and so that's actually contributing to the problem. So we need to be thinking about that side. But also, we need to be thinking about things like the governance and the way we engage with people and the partnerships, because that is a way of adapting too. If you can start to listen to diverse voices, you actually start to make up a much richer picture of the problem. And what we're realizing is these are complex problems. And we saw that during the drought. It wasn't just a water problem where now suddenly there wasn't enough water and so the water department needs to make a plan. It was whole industries, the tourism sector, got so badly impacted that people didn't come to Cape Town to visit. And so that impacted the people working in the tourism sector. So jobs, and that had knock-on effects in many ways. It impacted on small businesses. It impacted on health, etc. And so... COVID as well has shown us how interrelated some of these stresses are. And unfortunately, city governments are not set up always to work holistically. They're set up in sectors. So we have a water department and we have an informal settlements department. And they don't engage enough until these crises. And then they get to know each other and go, wow, we need to be working together. So we've started to understand that, but we need mechanisms to support that, both within local government and across between government and citizens, neighborhood groups. We've seen how neighborhood groups have really uh, pulled together during both the drought and COVID. And those neighborhood groups need to be supported. They don't need to feel that they are in opposition to the city, but the cities need to engage with them and find spaces that really enable innovation to meet this complex challenge because it's not going away. And we need to make sure that everybody is involved and gets the benefits of um, engagement because, as you said, it often is the poor who hit the hardest. And that's really unfair when they've had least to do with creating the problem. You know, Gina, you've actually addressed my final question, which really was about what are the following steps that we should be taking. Thank you both very much. Um, this project is a really good example of how academic research can directly impact on people's lives. It's crucial to come together to deal with problems like climate change. If we don't, the poor and vulnerable will suffer the most. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Pasha, produced by Uzea Patel. From me, Ines Kosana, goodbye for now.